Welcome to Parent to Parent, real-life tips to raise resilient kids. A podcast from Communities That Care of Greater Downingtown. This is Chrissy Jambowski, and I have two young kids. And I'm Beth Ann Sinelli, and I have two adult kids. Together, we'll meet with experts and fellow parents to share personal stories and provide support and actionable steps to strengthen your family and raise healthy kids. We're glad you're here. Let's get started. Welcome to Parent to Parent. This is Chrissy. And this is Beth Ann. And today we have Dr. Jennifer Benjamin and Jerome Williams from the Philadelphia Child and Family Therapy Training Center to talk about how alcohol use has changed over the past two years with the pandemic among adults and the societal influences that we see that impact parent alcohol use. Jen and Jerome, welcome to today's podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having us here. We're super excited. We always love coming and spending time with y'all. Yes. Thank you. So I, so we are very excited to talk about this topic today um, because it is one that we wanted to have an episode about because I'm sure anyone listening and I'm sure all of us here on this Zoom screen looking at each other um, knows like when the pandemic hit, we saw in the news people were buying alcohol, sales rose, people were consuming and drinking alcohol more often. Um, and it seems that now, you know, we're two years out of this, that some of those things have been hanging on. And also at the same time, you know, in other parents that I've talked to, other professionals, is that people are looking at this saying, hey, this is what happened to me when we were home during this time. And I'm still kind of reflecting on it and thinking about my own use. Or, you know, like maybe not realizing that they increased their alcohol use during this time for typically the reasons are stress, coping, those types of things. Um, And that it kind of, that increased rate sort of stuck and they're still, so they're new, their baseline kind of shifted. So, um, and I can even speak personally for myself. Like I did notice that I too was like, you know, in, I guess the fall, fall of 2020, it was just like something where I was more of a social drinker of wine, like moderate amounts, what would fall into. But then I noticed it started creeping up and it was, you know, it just, it kind of sneaks up on you how your tolerance increases and how Mm -hmm. alcohol can sort of, you know, and I guess any substance can kind of sneak into your routines where you don't really almost realize it's happening until you stop and go, Hey, wait a minute, how much did I have? How much did I drink this past week? And, And really reflect on it. And I think it's also hard when you're at that time. Anyway, everyone's home. There's nowhere to go. There's, you know, it's just, everything's happening at your home. Um, so just to share, can I bring up something there that I think we need to punctuate before we move into this topic? Because I know Jerome and I spent some time reflecting on today and Mm -hmm. we, we anticipate that this topic might be challenging for people. Mm -hmm. Um, although welcomed, it might also be very uncomfortable And I just wanted to lay out there for everybody um, after Jerome and I talked and what we really reflected on was, you know, I don't know if enough people, yes, they lived through a lockdown, right? But really understanding the impact Mm -hmm. of a lockdown, dismantling all your ways of life, Mm -hmm. socially, emotionally, mentally, physically, And so then what we do as humans is we gravitate towards what is available that we're familiar with. And I'm not saying that that makes this okay or that not okay. But what I, what I'm saying is that, you know, 
people went towards, and a lot of different things, Mm -hmm. went towards what was comfortable, what was accessible, what they knew, you know, and then you think of during a pandemic, you know, for a while people couldn't, like you said, couldn't get alcohol. So then when they could, it was really a human turning and latching onto something familiar amongst nothing familiar. And so I think that it's really, I, Jerome and I just really want to encourage people to um, be aware of your guard that might be up and just open yourself up to being uncomfortable a little bit today and really hearing this information because we all have a little work to do and making some corrections, you know, and like reestablishing ourselves back into the community in a healthy way. And this topic is really one of those areas. That's a great point, Jen. Thank you. And I think, I think the other piece of it too, is just to be nice to yourself, be kind to yourself, have some compassion with yourself. If you are listening to this or have been thinking about this or, or thinking of, you know, your partner or a friend or a family member, right. To just have Mm -hmm. compassion for, for all of it. Right. We all need to be a little bit nicer to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I did want to be very sciencey, of course. <laughs> I just share some, just some statistic, because it's one of those things that I think, you know, I can say personally, I've observed with myself and anecdotally in my circle of friends and also other parents that I've talked with and professionals, but just looking at, you know, um, some stats to share. There was a study that was done um in the fall of 2020 that found the frequency of alcohol consumption in the U.S. rose by 14% compared um, with before the pandemic. And also women in particular increased heavy drinking days by 41%, um, according to one study. And other studies also show similar trends um, that this was due to people reporting stress, isolation, all of those things you just mentioned as the primary mm-hmm. reason for choosing to drink so um, or reaching for alcohol as a way to cope. Um, so I think a good place to start is that, you know, when we talk about, um, either, you know, increasing drinking, what qualifies as heavy drinking, that when we think about what is a moderate amount of drinking, that the U S dietary guidelines, um, say that no more than one drink per day for women and two drinks per day for men is considered moderate drinking and that standard drinking unit. So it would be one drink would be a 12 ounce glass of beer, five ounces of wine, one and a half ounces of mm-hmm. hard liquor, right? So thinking of that, you know, just as a good place to start. So you two, as the experts and professionals that work with families, are you seeing this trend in your work among your clients and families? And are you seeing this kind of reflected back? So we've, we, we've seen this trend. Um, I want to say even before the pandemic, there, there was a trend. Um, culturally, there's, you know, influences in families um, that I want to say, say that this is something that's maybe okay, um, compared to different other families. That's, that's why I think it's hard to, um, when you talk about the standards of, of drinking levels, um, versus the standards of families and and how they associate with drinking, it looks different for every family. And I, and I think the other piece that has become very eye-opening is because now, um, in addition to what was already in existence, then this this other group of people now getting into this gray drinking area, what you find is 
there's not a lot of language in the family system to talk about the drinking. And so there becomes this like passive secret keeping or things not being addressed or how do you say to your partner, you were a little out of control last night or, um, you know, you're drinking a lot more or, Hey, we just spent $300 on wine last month. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there are conversations that people either don't know how to have, have never had before. And that's also something that is, is coming up because it's not necessarily like, Oh, um, addiction runs in our family. And so people, you know, have this awareness. So that's kind of this, to me, when I think about the great drinking, in addition to what Jerome's saying, I think that's the other piece occurring. Can you explain what gray area drinking is specifically, Jen? I know that we have that a little bit later on, but since we're already talking about it now, like what is gray area drinking? What does that mean? Well, Jerome and I, um, you know, we did some research, but we also have our own way that we think about it as family therapists. But I'd love for him to share with you guys what we were thinking about because we knew the question was coming. Yeah. So uh, gray area drinking is consuming even, uh, you know, a low level, even a moderate level of alcohol, but it doesn't exceed that, that uh, possibility or risk that you're going to become dependent on it. Um, so the, the dangers of, of that, I, I want to say of gray area drinking um, is that it's, it's what we call a functioning user. I, I stray from functioning alcoholic because that's demeaning, um, but a functioning user um, to where there's not any sort of, you know, kind of physical consequence. It's, it's more, I'm able to get up, I'm able to complete the tasks that I need to, um, and I'm able to continue on throughout my day and routine. Um, what we don't fail to, to what we fail to realize, sorry, um, is that it impacts um, how families regulate their emotions. Um, it impacts uh, parents taking a leadership position in the home um, because they're usually absent due to the substance use, even though it's a part of their culture, a part of them functioning right. They don't really realize how absent they might be from the home. Um, it impacts parents coming together um, to, you know, co-parent. Um, and it impacts how families just come together in general to spend time and enjoy one another. So, you know, similar to what you said, Jerome, this isn't, this is something that was exacerbated and exacerbated and increased during the pandemic, but mm-hmm. it, it has been, you know, it started, there's lots of other influences societally, culturally that have been in existence um, for a while. So thinking of influences that kind of contributed to increased drinking patterns, we know that alcohol does seem to be sort of omnipresent. It's in TVs, shows, it's in movies. Um, when you go to concerts and sporting events, you know, it's always there. You know, we also know, and we could probably and may end up doing a whole separate episode just on the mommy wine culture, the dad beer, parent drinking culture um, mm-hmm. that exists. Um, so I read an article that showed when I went to look up and say, okay, well, when did this whole mommy wine culture really start? It actually, the article that I found said it was around 2010. So that probably coincides with social media and smartphones becoming available. Um, So thinking about that, you know, and all of these other cultural influences and how alcohol sort of seems to be everywhere, um, how do these influence impact how not just kids but adults use alcohol? So the the one thing I want us all to think about is 
um, what Jerome was explaining is this like slow build to a place where things start to be impacted. And so he's really describing, um, does anybody, you know, who grew up in the eighties and nineties remembers you had a water cooler jug in the kitchen and you would put pennies in it. And then you'd be like, oh, what are you saving up for? Like, oh, Disney World, right? And then somehow enough of those pennies and you'd end up having enough money, Mm -hmm. right? For this big impact trip, Mm -hmm. right? And so what Jerome was talking about is that there's all these little things that are happening and it's not any single one event or any single one interaction. It's the impact of all of those happening, right? So... Think about, it's not, um, you know, maybe no one's getting blackout drunk every um, Friday and Saturday when the cul-de-sac was getting together and they're all drinking and the kids are running around. It's the impact of now they're not engaging and turning to their preteen or their adolescent and they're not talking about alcohol they're modeling drinking in a group and that's what you do on a Friday and Saturday. So then when the kid goes to experiment, right now, the, how is the parent to turn to them and say, we don't do that in this house. Right. So it, it's the long-term impact of all of these things that starts to, um, change the adult's experience, you know, how they, and when they turn to their child to connect, because you have to have a relationship with a child to give them corrective feedback that they're willing to take in and do something about, mm-hmm. right? You have to have a relationship with your co-pilot in order to um, make parenting decisions together, whether it's a grandparent or an uncle that lives with you or a step parent, right? Um, so it's more about this accumulative effect that happens over time. Um, and then, you know, you think about, so let's say the four of us were, you know, in the cul-de-sac together and our kid says something. And then if I turn to my cul-de-sac, my support during, you know, this time where things have been different for everybody and I go, oh, my kid was complaining. We drink too much. We're all going to go no, we're not. They don't know what they're talking about, right? So your self-awareness or your calibration shifts depending on like the group you're in, you know, the system of people you're sitting in, Um, you know, and especially let's say I did a couple generations ago have people who were, you know, dealing with addiction and we broke that pattern. So, I'm going to feel really great if I'm sitting with other people and I think really highly of Chrissy and Bethann and Jerome and what they do for a living and how their kids are. And I'm like, Oh, I'm not doing anything different than they do. Mm-hmm. Right. I, it impacts me as an adult. Cause I assume it's okay for me. Cause it's okay for you. Mm-hmm. Right. We stop mm-hmm. thinking about ourselves and our individual responsibility to our well being and how mm-hmm. that's influencing our immediate family behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. So Jen and Jerome, you know what I, there's a, there's a couple things in there uh, that, that I just want to kind of want to go back on. And I think one of the things, Jen, that you were talking about and, and to Jerome's point about over time, 
is that it really does impress upon me that as a, a parent role, the need to start these things earlier, right? And to mm-hmm. really think about, I think it's really easy when your kids are very young or in those developmental years to think, I don't have to worry about it yet. They're not, you know, for whatever reason, it's just like, it's too soon. We don't need to talk about this. We don't need to address these things. They're too young and they're not going to understand it. It's out of context mm-hmm. for them, not developmentally appropriate. And we kind of hold on to that and time quickly burns on. And so now we're perhaps in middle school or really into high school. And now these things show up, you know, they've like, they're no longer under the surface of the iceberg. They're kind of like coming up top. And now we mm-hmm. expect to be able to make up for that lost time and to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to have these conversations quickly and maybe defensively because it's like, well, I'm an adult and this is what adults do. And it's not okay for you, though. Um, And yet they may have heard and observed and been part Mm. of other alcohol behaviors over all this time. So I think Mm. that's one thing that I think about with this overtime idea and is the significant importance of these conversations. And, you know, from very, very, we've always talked about having the uncomfortable conversations appropriately earlier. Right. Struggle. So I don't know if there's anything you want to just speak to just on that piece, because that's part one that kind of like screamed at me like, ah, that's my thing. Makes me crazy. Yes. Yeah. So, so there's the, and and I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing this up, Bethann, because this is a great point. Um, There's that phrase that children are sponges, right? This is the first thing that came to my mind. Children are sponges. So they soak in what they're seeing in their environment. So early on, and that education is critical to, to understand what children are soaking in. Um, the, the misconception is if I talk about this stuff, especially with my young children, that it's going to make things worse or it's going to push them to use um, when they're already at this time um, getting these messages um, as, as, as early as elementary. You know, the kid, kids are talking about these things. Um, and, and just to speak on that a little bit more, um, when, you know, as a kid and you're seeing your parent, um, you know, use substances, um, you begin to give that, that, that substance life, you give it a function, right? So, you know, you drink to relax, you know, you drink to have fun, unwind. Um, and that's those associations, you know, as a kid, because they're not going to understand, you know, the, the nine to five you just had, right? <laughs> or, 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 or what has happened through your day. They're just going to associate that this is what I do, or this is what I see. And it begins to create life. It begins to create legs. Um, so it's important to have these conversations now and to for parents to, to really take a look at um, and question a little bit about what they're doing. Um, not, not as a way to, to shame or blame, but as a way to, you know, really think about how can we help kids now, set them up for the future, you know, for success. Christy, I'm going to say it. Early and often. I know. I know. She, right? I, I know you were thinking it. So I'm just going to say it because, because what Jerome's pointing out is if we take the approach of early and often, many parents are going to discover, I don't know how to talk to my eight-year-old about this. Mm-hmm. So then you do what we all do. You turn to Google, you look at a couple things, maybe you find some worksheets or thoughts, and then you start to also learn more about like how I would have to talk to my eight-year-old, how they might see things. And 
it's not that you have to be ready to psychoeducate your child. It's that you have to be ready and tolerant of their curiosity. And that curiosity doesn't mean, as Jerome's saying, that they're just going to go start drinking at eight, right? Because if they don't get the opportunity to be curious with their caregiver, they will find another way to be curious and you're not going to like the way they figure it out. Mm -hmm. So your choices are that you be the one, you be the receiver of the curiosity or it's going to happen outside of your view. So what about the parents who are listening to this saying, thinking to themselves, okay, so now I can't have a glass. You're saying to me as a parent, I can't have a glass of wine with dinner every night or have a beer when I get home and that's it. If it's my one drink a day or my one drink a couple days a week, what would you say to someone listening to this that might be feeling, you know, kind of back to your point, Jerome, like, mm-hmm. you know, because we, I think we want to, you know, not make anyone feel like they're being judged or should feel sure. shame for their choices in those things. Sure. Um, and I think that that's a really good point. Um, it's how do we still have conversations about that? Um, like for example, for me growing up personally, I know that there wasn't any explanations on what moderation was, Mm. um, or, you know, discussions around, you know, why things are are happening. Um, because there is, there is a, a thing as you gave the standards earlier as what's, um, you know, appropriate use you know, um, but just having those, those explanations with, with children early on is important, especially around moderation. Yeah. Because, you know, even though a set of parents may be okay drinking a glass of wine and it's not a problem, right. And it's not a problem for their child. Say when they go to college, they have a friend who one glass of wine is too much for them because that's possible, right? Everybody has a different physical tolerance, yeah. a way they digest substances. And so, you know, what we're trying to also encourage is bigger than just your child and them. It's your child launching from the nest in the future and launching into their own group. And being mm-hmm. able to have a voice and feel comfortable with their boundaries or addressing or attending to challenges that come up around amount and usage, mm-hmm. right? So it's, we're thinking not only about the right now, mm-hmm. we're thinking about the after effects of this in five, 10 and 15 years, because there will be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this made me think of something too, that um, I I don't remember what it was for, but my kids were like asking because um, my husband doesn't drink at all. And so, but I will occasionally have wine and, and much again, I kind of did a reset in 2021 in January, did a dry January and a reset. And now I'm a person who used to maybe have wine Fridays and Saturdays. Now I probably drink alcohol maybe two to three times a month. Um, and I'm happy to share that and, and kind of, you know, Mm-hmm. my experience. Um, but what's interesting is my kids were saying like they saw a craft or something and we were having dinner and they said something like, Oh mommy, the next time you have a wine bottle, like, can I have it? I want to do a craft or something with it or use it for something. And I said, okay. And they were, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I don't really, you know, yeah, but I don't have, I don't have any wine in the house right now. And so they said something like, but you love wine. This is what the kids said. 
And and I said, oh, I'm like, how many times a week do you guys, do you guys think I drink a lot of wine or something? And they go, they're like, well, I don't know. And I was like, guys, how many, how many times a week do you think I drink? And so, and granted, like, we're all together home all the time. And they're like, mm, maybe like two or three days a week. And I'm like, guys, I haven't had, like, and it's just, it's not true, but that is their perception, which is very oh. interesting. And that mm-hmm. probably was an accurate perception back at the beginning of the pandemic, right? And they were yeah. even younger yeah. then, right? So that was, right? And so, and it and it kind of goes back to that gray area drinking, and, and I know we're going to touch upon this, of that, you know, you don't ha- have to necessarily be physically dependent on a substance or even a mm-hmm. behavior or anything else. I know we'll talk more about this to consider it, reflect on it and question it and think about your relationship with that behavior or that substance um, to, to just think about it. So, but I thought that was very interesting. That's what yeah. their perception was. And so then we had a conversation. I said, no guys, you know, I don't really, I, I really, I know it might seem that way, but I yeah. haven't, it's only, well, aren't a, you glad though you had the conversation? Yeah. yeah. And that was it. It was like a quick little yeah. thing. And, and this is where I will plug that we did have Dr. Jennifer Benjamin on as a parent speaker series person back in October. Mm-hmm. I will link up the presentation that's recorded as part of our parent speaker series in the show notes, which I should have led with in the beginning. Um, but that's what we talked about was, yeah. you know, early and often conversations and how to have uncomfortable conversations. And so we just talked about it. And I said, you know, we just had a whole little little thing about it, and that was it. But it was very wow. interesting to see what their yeah. perception was. Well, and you probably are standing in the middle of the craft store, but you, right, and it was like a thirty <laughs> second thing, but it's yeah. totally yeah. worth it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And doesn't that sort of speak that perception piece, the weight of that when we talk about social norms and when kids, you know, the classic everybody has X, everybody does mm-hmm. Y. I mean that, and then we're like, no, they don't. That is not it at all. But how? That just this just happened in your house. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't even have to go out into the general public community of peers mm-hmm. to have an observation that's warped, yep. you know, not accurate, right. but yet influences. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that power of that. And we always talk about correcting for those perceptions that really are not what is happening in actual life. So I just think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It happened in your house. You yep. had your own mini little, yep. you know, so experiment research project there on, on yeah. social norms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can I tell you what I, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was good. Go ahead. Yeah. Can I tell you what I love about that though, Chrissy? What? Is, is, and, and thank you. You, you had the conversation and it didn't, it wasn't attached with any blame, shame, um, wasn't attached with any kind of defensiveness to what the children were saying. It was, you know, it, it was just a conversation to describe like, you know, I, I don't, you know, it's not that much. Um, and it's really helping to create that, that open line of communication. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes parents, when they're presented with that question, they respond with shame, blame, mm-hmm. guilt, defensiveness. And that really cuts off the communication. So as going back to Jen's point, when they do, you know, launch out of the home, who had a conversation with them about limits, yeah. who had a conversation and, and, and it wasn't any type of, you know, you're wrong. It was just a more playful kind of, you know, Hey, I don't, I don't do it that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's those simple conversations that, that lead to larger successes. Yeah. I want to follow up. I don't know if this is the right place or not, but it, uh, Jerome just said this and Jen said it a few minutes ago. This, um, as we think about our kids going along, you know, growing up um, through the K to 12 years, but then, you know, sort of being launched into young adulthood, you know, at post high school graduation and how these behaviors and attitudes and perceptions all 
all wrap up, you know, into one blender of stuff. And then what they choose to do that, you know, first year away from home kind of a thing. I can remember conversation, and again, being the older parent here out of our four boxes with older kids in their 20s, I can remember folks sort of being fearful about um, not about their children's alcohol use and being okay with them sort of experimenting or being part of the family drinking at certain times and what they felt was appropriate and celebrations and things like that. Because it was sort of like, if you don't let them have it now, they're going to go crazy Mm. when they're out of the house. And sort of like my kids never had fast food their whole life. And they will tell you that we, I wasn't, I wasn't having it. We weren't going to McDonald's. I'm not, we're not doing it. So there was no fast food you know, in their lives and really not a lot of junk food. And everybody was like, you're going to regret that because they're going to have no experience with it. And when they leave the home, they're going to go crazy. They're just going to want it so bad. And alcohol is kind of the same way. If you introduce them to it and they're part of the culture, then they're less likely to consume it in great quantities like Yahoo. And no, that didn't, none of that happened to my children. They did not become obsessed with drive through at McDonald's. They did not become obsessed with junk food, nor did they become obsessed with alcohol. So I, but that's a tough thing to have that, you know, conversation about your home and then folks, how they perceive that could impact them later in life when your children are making choices for themselves. I think it's really important with this question and comment that you're bringing up about, you know, like parents deciding to invite their children into substance use in an environment where they're at. Um, I think we have to talk about it in two ways, biologically and sociologically, right? Um, Here's the thing. There is more than enough research to show the use of substances for children changes their brain structure, chemistry, development, it's very serious. I, I don't know how else to say it, except mm-hmm. that, you know, a, a female's brain isn't fully developed till they're like 22, 23. A male's brain isn't fully developed till they're 24, 25, right? And honestly, if it were up to me, I would say you couldn't drink or use substances, you know, alcohol until after your brain's fully developed, Mm -hmm, honestly, because it is proven the impact, right? And, and so I, I think that is also why when it's startling for parents, though, you know, um, Jerome and I've worked in the home doing family therapy for a very long time. And, you know, parents get startled when they find out we have to report them to children and youth for providing their underage child with substances, you know, or alcohol, um, you know, because they believe it's their house. But the research is that clear that it's considered endangering a youth when you do that, right? So I think the other part of this, though, is you know, um, so Bethany, I love how you framed it as like the parents' thought processes will all socialize them with it, right? Mm-hmm. right? Right. That's still not addressing the curiosity, the questions, and creating conversation. 
just because I drop somebody in a social environment, that does not mean that I am turning to my child and saying, that's too much, or you are out of control when you, that's mm-hmm. not an appropriate way to talk to when you're right. None of those conversations actually probably happened. It was almost like, um, accidentally avoiding the conversations when they had good intent. Sure. And some yeah. of it too, Bethann, is that's mm. how they were introduced to substances. Right. It's Absolutely. generational. It's the cycles, the cycles. cyclical Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I live this. So I, I know that when you're that parent, you, mm. you're not judging. You're, you might just be sitting quietly because you're not doing those things. But it is really hard to... Mm-hmm. without being judgy, mm-hmm. pointing at your neighbors, pointing at your friends in the cul-de-sac, like, yeah, we just don't do that. No, we don't drink in our home. No, we don't take beers when we go Halloweening around the neighborhood with the I kids. Mean, no, I, we're not. I don't, we don't do that. that, that and that's really hard sometimes to be that parent who steps out of the oh, yeah. room because you like these people. Your children play together. You mm-hmm. go to school with them and you are choosing to not be in on that or kind of but who, but who says you can't sit with them oh yeah no i did i do yeah but, but I, I don't know if everybody could be really kind of comfortable with themselves to no, be I, I think they're talking about two different things oh. mm-hmm. um i actually think the one thing they're talking about is that you know witnessing a drunk caregiver is actually an adverse childhood experience mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um i think the other thing they're talking about is you know, social development that we're, we are not all taught how to, after Halloween, turn to our neighbors and go, Oh, what were your thoughts about that? Mm. Oh, so true. But I, but I mean, it's, you know, it's like, and I think that's why often people either are in the group or out the group Yes, is Mm. because they think that that's the least uncomfortable option instead of having a conversation and just being curious. Yeah. Is Jerome, mm-hmm. I bet you if they had a conversation, they would find out, well, I did it because Bob did it. Well, Bob did it because Sally did it. Well, Sally mm-hmm. did it because Susie did it. You know what I'm saying, Jerome? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're all susceptible, uh, susceptible to groupthink. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's that misconception that, you know, groupthink, that, that doesn't happen to, to us. I'm my own person. I can make my own decisions. Yeah. Not when you're in, in such an environment and you can have all the best intentions in the world, but it's so it's so fearful you know, to, to speak out. But what Jen is saying is right. It's like, how do we have conversations about how we view something and then how it impacts us? Mm-hmm. And it's all about those conversations and they right. don't get, it doesn't get any easier. I mean, if our kids are struggling with it, mm-hmm. certainly adults. Well, and first and- of all, if we can't turn to a group of adults after the fact, yeah. Yeah. And somehow we want our teenager who doesn't have oh. a fully formed frontal yeah. lobe uh-huh. to turn to their buddies and have a conversation about it. Like, mm-hmm. who the heck do you think you are? A magician? Like, that's right? insane. It does. Like, the expectation. Yeah. Them? It doesn't make, it's not logical. Yeah. It doesn't no. make any sense. No, mm-hmm. it's having, the, and having expectations that they're going to be able to do what you as an adult were unable or to unwilling do. to willing do because uh-huh. it felt so un- uncomfortable mm-hmm. to even think about it. it does. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's a great point. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about how to keep having these conversations and also next steps and resources. If you or someone you may know is thinking about, you know, and reflecting on their own alcohol use. So we'll be right back. 
Hey, Karen. Oh my gosh. I had so much fun at our snowball shuffle run walk. Chrissy, it was a blast. Did you know we had over 200 people attend and we raised over $25,000? That's amazing. This success wouldn't have been possible without our sponsors and the support from our community. Yep. A big shout out to Hankin Group for hosting us at Eagle View. We are also thankful for the generosity of our Nor'easter sponsor, Citadel, and our Blizzard sponsor, Brumbaugh Wealth Management. Karen, can you tell me the other sponsors again? There are so many. AGC, Sonara Today, the UPS Store, Bentley, Embark, Craft School Bus, Miller's Insurance Agency, WBYA, Ethos, First Resource Bank, Lionville Natural Pharmacy, Morocco Run Club, State Farm Ed Hart, United Tire, The Wright Agency, Wegmans, and United Way of Chester County for donating event bags. Wow, that's a lot of sponsors. We also have to give a big thank you to the local businesses that donated items for our raffle and team prizes. Yes, all of the money raised will help us continue to fulfill CTC's mission and support all our programs for youth and parents. We also have to thank our team captains, donors, volunteers, and everyone who participated. You could really feel the positive energy and sense of community that day. We hope to see everyone next year at our second Snowball Shuffle. Shuffle, 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 shuffle. shuffle. Uh, We're back, and to continue our conversation, we want to talk a little bit about this um, this parent-child relationship with, with alcohol use. And um, just sort of talk about what we've observed in our Downingtown community. So, you know, we're fortunate to, that our students in grades 6, 8, 10, and 12, we collect, um, we get information related to drug and alcohol perceptions and use attitudes. And in 2019, which would, would have been pre-COVID data, it was very interesting to, to note that more than half of the students had known one or more adults who had gotten drunk or high. And the breakdown for this is 37% of 6th graders, 55% of 8th graders, 65% of 10th graders, and 71% of 12th graders. So there's most definitely an increase as um, students are getting older in their observation of adult behavior Mm -hmm. with alcohol. So, and and this again is always something that I'm always very, very interested in are the influences on children and adolescents about alcohol use or, or drug use. So I'm really curious to hear from, from you, Jen and Jerome, about the impact that, um, that this has on when parents drink, caregivers drink, on kids, even if it's in moderation, in terms of role modeling and language use and you know, just their, their, the messaging that occurs. So, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, you know, typically, even if we're at moderate use, there's almost a habitual way that we engage in alcohol. And so I would like everybody who's listening right now to even stop and think about on a seven day week, right? Is there a certain day of the week where if you get to that day, you reward yourself with a Jamaican me crazy? right? Or a glass of wine or a cold beer Um, is, you know, like, as we've mentioned before, a ritual that before the game, you crack open a beer or, you know, if you're going to call your parent on the phone, you pour yourself um, some Hennessy, 
right? And you sit in the leather couch, you know, the lazy yeah. boy, and you put your feet up and then you have the conversation, right? Um, there's this initial piece with the role modeling that is more about the habit use or when you plug the use of substances into your day-to-day, your, your ritual. Um, I, then when we get to language, I think the hardest part, honestly, is it's, it's probably going to be outside of your awareness. Yeah. You're not going to, you're not going to be conscious about Mm -hmm. like coming home and being like, my feet hurt. And then you hear, right. Cause you open a beer, right. Or thank God it's Thursday. I made it. And then you hear a cork pop. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think it's this combination that happens outside of our awareness of language with, um, like habitual use that is more about this gray drinking stuff Mm, versus somebody, a lot of people don't go, I have to have a beer to relax my nerves. Like (laughs) people don't say that, right? They might make a comment of distress or put an SOS out and then go sit in their spot or see that mommy brings the the glass of ice and the decanter, you know, like, right, right. And, and so that's where I think um, the thing we have to look at in this, you know, post-lockdown error and moving forward mm-hmm. is what has the culture in your household become around the use and placement of substances? And it's not a good or bad thing. It's just a reality, right? Like it's mm-hmm. just everybody, it's almost like taking an objective in- inventory, right? Do you store substances now in the garage and you never did that before? Because, oh my God, if we get, if we have another spike and they shut the state stores down, I'm not <laughs> dealing with that, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not, how is it different from the toilet paper? Um, right. You know, or is it that now you do have a drawer in the fridge that you keep stuff in and it takes up 20% of your fridge where you never had that before, right? Yeah. Like it, it's really trying to look at <laughs> objectively that you probably would not have looked at before um, without really slowing down and, and choosing to. I don't, I don't know, Jerome, if there's anything else you're thinking about. I know those were the big points we discussed. Yeah. Um, and, and just to just to add a little bit more to that, when we think about uh, substance use, right, we have to remember that um, most most of the time it serves a function. Right. It serves a function. I mean, we've talked earlier about the pandemic and and how stress, I want to say despair has has played into this of our routines being shifted. Um, and this becoming somewhat of a new normal, right? Substances being a new normal as, as a way to cope. So it, it's it's hard to think of, you know, what can I do in, in my environment um, to, to eliminate some of this maybe toxicity? You know, what do I need to do better to cope? Who do I need to do better to cope mm-hmm. with stress, right? Because right. <laughs> we all need someone. Mm-hmm. That was all. Sorry. I just want to be sure. Okay. Um, so if someone that's listening to this, you know, is questioning their alcohol use, um, 
the same way that I did. And I just did the dry January reset and it, and I read some, I did read, look into some sober curious stuff and, and read a couple quitlet books that I can link up in the show notes to if anyone's interested in that. But if someone is questioning their alcohol use, what would you say are the next steps for them to get resources and help? Yeah. And I, and I think that's a great question. Um, we can talk about the, you know, why, so to speak, but where, where is so important. Um, as we've been talking about, the most important thing to do is have conversations. Um, who can we have these conversations with? Um, when, when we work with families, we do an eco map and we look at the positive and the negative supports. Um, that that might be in, in a family's life that who can we utilize to help, you know, produce, you know, change that we make in treatment. Um, but I think that that's across of all areas. You know, when I'm stressed, I have somebody I can talk to. I can talk to my partner. I can talk to, you know, and, and for especially kids, maybe there's a coach. Maybe there's a teacher. You know, they're curious. They have questions, but, you know, they're not sure exactly where to go. Um, is to help people find those who they can be comfortable with, with uncomfortable conversations. Do you want to add to that, Jen? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the points really, and what Jerome's bringing up with this idea of like, what is your network? What is your support system is you can't keep it a secret. You know, Mm -hmm. like if, if you are feeling that pull or that interest and, and sobriety might be helpful to you or, um, like re- reduction of use. Don't do it in isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, don't people don't heal in isolation. It's really almost impossible to solve things in isolation because when you what we're talking about is great drinking is a relational challenge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not a checklist. So if you solve it in isolation, you're not really solving anything. So, you know, when you think about your support system, you know, maybe there's a teacher you trusted as an adult that you trusted when you were in high school. Maybe, maybe you email and go, Hey, do you know anybody who you trust who's walking sobriety or, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Like the great thing about modern technology is that you're not limited to like your neighbor or your pastor or, um, your cousin, you know, if there are people in the past who showed up for you, reach out, have a conversation with them. Like you just don't know till you ask how people are willing and interested. And um, like, even think about today, like Chrissy, you sharing your story, there's no way that didn't speak to like everybody. Mm -hmm. Right. And because of your willingness to share, what you find is that somebody else is going to be more willing to share. And there will be people who are willing to listen. And, or maybe, you know, a coworker who goes to AA, or maybe, you know, you Google Al-Anon, where there's a group Mm -hmm. of people, it's an open meeting. It's not just for people who are working through their addiction. It's for people who know people who are working through their addiction. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. you can, you can always call your, you know, you can call HR and just say, you want, you want to use your EAP, um, sessions and you just, you know, you can say you're stressed. That's good enough to get your EAPs. And then you can talk to the therapist about it. Right. 
You can call your insurance. You can look online with your insurance and find a therapist. Some people even prefer life coaches. You know, they're great resources. Life coaches are wonderful. Um, and ultimately, even if you look at SAMHSA.gov, which I'm sure Christy could put, yep. um, you know, in the links, there's National Helpline. There, there are warm bodies ready and willing because, you know, we don't want to wait five years and then decide we should have done something three years ago. Right. So even if you're thinking maybe this is a challenge, I'm not quite sure, look into it. Have have a third person whose objective help you decide if it's a challenge or not. You know, maybe initially you decide I'm going to do some reduction. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you realize in the reduction that's still not working for you. So you decide to really cut back to, you know, special occasions. I don't Mm -hmm. know. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it's individualized, but the big thing is, you know, can you turn and look in the mirror and feel okay about it once you consciously understand your habits, how it's impacting your, you know, emotion regulation, your co-parenting relationships, your relationship with your child, right? And your ability to lead your family. That's what matters, right? It's really, and that could change in a couple of years. You could feel different about it and that's all right too, right? But it's just making sure that it's a conscious choice on your part and you're not just going along with it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and to piggyback off of that, um, smartrecovery.org, um, there's a, a worksheet that I, that I had pulled up that I thought was, you know, pretty interesting um, because making patterns observable, right? If it's not in, in, in front of you, you don't really think about it. Um, so there's a, a little table chart. It's a cost benefit analysis. It goes over the advantages. So the benefits or rewards, right? Of use. Um, because again, it's serving some, some sort of function. Um, and then what are some of the disadvantages? What are the costs and the risks of using or doing something? Um, and then the opposite, you know, on the bottom chart part of it, not using or doing, you know, what are some of the advantages of, of stopping the benefits and rewards and what are some of the disadvantages? What are some of the costs and risks? You know, I've, I've kind of had this identity and it's gone. So how am I going to deal with life on life's terms? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that's, that's a little tool, um, thinking about where to go in terms of technical, you know, resources, there is a PA get help not uh, get help now. It's a uh, um, the website is apps.ddap.pa.gov. Um, what I what I love about this website is that you can find providers in your local area. Um, you can click where to find treatment centers in your area. Um, and when you get to that website on the bottom, there's a bottom right. Uh, tab that says, um, and it's in the chart labeled popular on ddap.pa.gov. On the bottom right, there's a tab that says find your county office. Um, You can click on your county, you can type it in, and then you can find where your local drug and alcohol agency is. So I thought that was really neat. And I think, you know, in everything that you both have shared and that we've talked about today, the main point is is that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be dependent or meet dependent criteria because mm. when we think of substance use disorder, 
um, as in someone being physically and mentally dependent on a substance, it's a continuum of mild to severe, right? And so you don't necessarily have to, you could be a person that has one glass of wine or one drink once a month, or you could be someone that's consuming every single day. It doesn't matter the quantity so much as how you feel about your relationship with that substance. And it's okay to question. And I will say that is one thing that's so interesting about alcohol is it's the one substance where you go, oh, you know, I'm taking a break from alcohol. And people will either say to you, as I've experienced, are you pregnant? Or they will say, Uh. or they will say, what? And I, and I, you know, oh, really? Why? why? And and, at, and I said, oh, you know, it's just, you know, I'm just reevaluating my relationship with this substance. You don't have a problem. You're fine. And you kind of said this before, Jen. And so, you know, mm-hmm. it's one of the only substances that exist. If you swapped in any other substance, it would, it would have a different meaning. But it's just that people will fight with you, say, you know, and ask you these questions. Are you pregnant? You don't have a problem. Everything's fine. Those types of things, which I always well, found so it, interesting. What does it mean for them then? Right. Mm. Right. I mean, and, and what you're speaking to is like, what's the normative practice? Well, you, everybody immediately Mm -hmm. goes, Oh, are you pregnant? And it's like, Mm -hmm. I have, we don't even have time. I can do a whole show on that. Well, I I was about to say, I feel like we might have to do a part two, Jen. I might have to, I might have to get you on my calendar for a part two to this. Cause I know we're running short on time. Sorry for the, (laughs) from the male's perspective, you know, you're seeing less than, you know, you're, you're not fun anymore. Mm. Um, they question your manhood, right? Cause you're right. not drinking anymore. Cause it's yes. just a part of culture. Yes. So absolutely so true. Tied to so many things. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Well, this is why it's a holistic approach, right? Yeah. Because we can't just focus on biology yes. and genetics. So trying to change the individual, there's yes. a whole environment mm-hmm. that impacts them. Mm-hmm. And the question that's did more, more difficult and challenging is how do we change our environment? Mm. Oh my God, that's that's it, Jerome. We're gonna have another episode. That's gonna be our next thing. How do we change our environment? I love it so much. Oh my gosh, wonderful. So uh, we'd also like to be able to tell our listeners today where they can find each of you um, for further information. Um, so your socials, websites, anything else that you might like to share as we we sort of wrap up um, where to look for additional help. Sure. Yeah. So Jerome and I, um, you know, ourselves are fans of our Instagram and Facebook page at the training center. So on Instagram, it's Phila family, P H I L A family. And if you go on Facebook page, you can look us up by the full name of the training center, the Philadelphia child and family therapy training center, or the abbreviation, which is PCF ttc.com you know um but i'll make sure that christy you have all those links to put up as well thank you both so much for taking the time to be here today and chat with us i think we could talk about we could do like a 20-part series just talking about this one topic um but everyone who's listening please check all the um check the show notes for links to everything that we talked about today um, and be sure to click subscribe or follow in your podcast app that you're listening to us on so you get all of our newest episodes as soon as they come out so we will talk to you in two weeks thank you bye thank you bye y'all everyone bye Bye. take care